so thrilled to see you. Um, moms, happy Mother's Day. I'm looking into the camera. My mom's probably watching. Happy Mother's Day. Mom, I've got three Mother's Day quotes, okay? Because um, I don't want this to go unsaid. I mean, this is a big deal. We're in the presence of royalty this morning uh, with all the moms. Abraham Lincoln. These are all big-time quotes, by the way, all right? Abraham Lincoln. No man is poor who has a godly mother. Right on. Charles Spurgeon. I cannot tell how, uh, I cannot tell how much I owe to the prayers of my good mother. I can hear the echo of her prayers in every sermon I preach. I feel that. Mom, I feel that. All right, here's another one. G. Campbell Morgan, maybe you're less familiar with him. He's a, a early 20th century uh, Westminster Chapel, London, famous church, famous preacher. Had four sons. They were all preachers. Someone once came into the drawing room when all of the family was there. They thought they'd see what Howard, the, one of the sons, was made of, so they asked him this question, Howard, who's the greatest preacher in your family? Howard had great admiration for his father and looked straight across at him, and then without a moment's hesitation, he said, Mom. Right? It's the way it is in my house, I can guarantee you. My children will remember far more that Leslie imparted to them in car rides to school and pickups home than they um, will ever remember me saying, standing behind this pulpit. So happy Mother's Day to my mom, to the mother of my children, and to all the moms here this morning. If you've got your Bibles... Go to Matthew chapter 5. It's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to start a series on the Sermon on the Mount. You might call it the Summer on the Mount. That's where we're going to be this summer. We're going to be on this mountain with Jesus. We're going to be listening to what it is that Jesus has to say in this very first block of teaching that Matthew records. Our house uh, in seminary uh, was on Wake Drive in Richardson. And one of the things about the house, after we lived there for a while, there were cracks in the wall. We had um, foundation problems in that house in Richardson. We needed more than just plaster and paint. What we needed was a new foundation. Let, let me say this right at the outset. Christianity is not this moral plaster and paint that we apply to the exterior of our lives. It's not plaster and paint to, to cover our behavior and our relationships. Christianity is not about what you do. It is about who you are. 
See, Christianity is a foundational issue in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, in fact, he's the one that replaced, uh, after G. Campbell Morgan retired, Martin Lloyd-Jones took his place there at Westminster Chapel in London. And he has written so much about the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, over these next weeks, you'll hear a lot of, you'll, you'll get familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says it this way. He says, a Christian is, some, is something before he does something. And we have to be Christians before we can act as Christians. Being is more important than doing Attitude is more significant than action. See, we look at the New Testament, and there's plenty of exhortation in the New Testament, plenty of imperatives, things that we're to do in the New Testament. But it is not primarily an exhortation. It is not a manual on what to do. See, the New Testament comes and, and proclaims this gospel of Jesus Christ, and it says that, that by faith in Jesus, you are something. And this is what that something looks like, the Sermon on the Mount. So, so you're going to hear me say it a couple of times this morning because I want to make sure you get it. This is not a moral guide. At the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is our need for a radical new birth uh, as a new creation with a new identity and a new disposition and a new, entirely new reality. And so, it guides us. That's the way I want you to hear the Sermon on the Mount. There's plenty of things in the Sermon on the Mount that says, do this, this is what you should do. And every time you hear that, I want you to be able to say in the back of your mind, but you got to be that before you do that. Because that's the whole point of Matthew's gospel. He's contrasting. This is, this is what's happening. What Jesus is doing, he stands up on the mountain, he looks out at the disciples and all those that have gathered around the disciples. And essentially saying, there was an old way of being human. And you were born into that way. What I want to show you, what I want, what I want to paint the picture of is that there is a new way of being human. And it is the way you were always intended to be. Well, when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, there are several ways that people have taken it. it it's actually, you know, you were to pick up a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, you find all of a sudden, wow, there's so much going on here that I didn't even realize. And, and, it's, and it, some of it has to do with how do people understand the Sermon on the Mount? What's its purpose? There are some that have said, hey, listen, this is a social manifesto, if you will. It's the ideal for society. It's a, it's a blueprint 
for peace in our society. There is utopia promised here on earth. There are some that say, no, 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 it's not a social manifesto at all. It is a religious manifesto. It is the way of salvation. Do these things and you are in. Do these things and the world offered to you can be yours. One point about that, and then I'm going to make another point about it in a second. But this cannot be, just hear me, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount cannot be the whole gospel. There is no resurrection. There is no crucifixion. There's no atonement. This is not the whole gospel. In fact, Matthew's writing a story. He begins in chapter 1, he ends in chapter 28, and the whole story hangs together. There's no portion to pull out of this story and say, this is all that there is. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's strategy is meant to do something for us. Well, the final, one of the final ways, and then there are several others, but one is people just look at this and go, well, look, the reality is this is nice teaching and all, but it's impractical. It's irrelevant for the 21st century. And beyond that, it's unattainable. It's not anything we could ever do. So, read it as poetry, find a few verses, have it stitched on a thing, hang it in your house. I mean, that that's about what it's good for. And I would argue that it's vastly more significant than any of those approaches. To, to show this to you before we actually get into the sermon, the sermon goes from the beginning of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7. Um, in fact, there's a, actually it begins at the very end of chapter 4 where we're, where we're taken into this, to, to, to the movement that's going to lead Jesus to the mountain. But at the end of chapter 7, the very last verses, he comes off the mountain there. L let me show you some bookends in Matthew, and maybe this will help orient us in how we are to read the sermon on the mountain. If you've got your Bibles, and only if you've got your Bibles, because I don't have these up on the screen, but you could jot them down or pull them up on your phone, um, you, you really have to begin in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And I want to read this out loud, and I want you to see it. He, he said, the, Matthew writes it this way, and he went, this is Jesus, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew's giving us a picture of this. This is how the ministry started. In, in chapter 4, the beginning of that, Jesus goes into the wilderness, is tempted by Satan. He comes out, he begins his ministry, calls the first disciples. And then Matthew says, what he does, he takes these disciples and he goes, and he goes all throughout Galilee teaching and healing and people are coming to him. Now, go over to chapter 9. Just flip over. I know we don't do this a lot, the flippings, flipping arounds. Uh, but go to chapter 9 towards the end of chapter 9, verse 35. And he says this. 
And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What Matthew's doing is he's kind of giving us some, some, uh, some bookends here. Jesus is going to go and he's going to teach and he's going to heal. Jesus was, was going around teaching and healing. And in the middle of that, what would you think is in the middle of the two bookends? Teaching and healing. Matthew 5 through 7 is the teaching part. Chapters 8 and 9 are the healing. Now, let me show you one more thing because I think this is helpful before we get into it. This is, I think, a strategy Matthew's going to give us to help us know how to read the Sermon on the Mount. And then what I'm going to do is we're going to start looking at the Beatitudes, and then I'm going to, I'm going to let you go because I know you've got special things planned for the mom in your life, right? But look at, look at the beginning of chapter 8. The Sermon on the Mount is complete, and... Uh, well, the end of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. At the same time, when we get into this Sermon on the Mount, and we find ourselves hearers there on the side of the mountain listening to Jesus proclaim this kingdom of God. We also will find ourselves astonished. We will see Jesus speaks with authority that no one had ever spoken with before. And at the same time, you know things we'll hear? Jesus will say to those on the side of the mountain, he'll say to us, be perfect. Like your heavenly father's perfect. He'll say about forgiveness. Unless you are able to forgive, your father in heaven won't forgive you. As to the Ten Commandments, well, you know what they are, but let me tell you it's actually worse than you thought. You, you even look at a woman in a desiring or lustful way. You've already committed adultery. You, you're angry with a person. You've, are, that, that counts as murder. Well, what you hear from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is, no, this isn't how you fulfill the Ten Commandments. The fact the Ten Commandments are the low bar. This now is the high bar. You didn't even know what bad a shape you were in. In fact, you come off the mountain, I come off the mountain. And while we're astonished and while we see his authority and while everything he has said about the kingdom of God ignites in us and kindles in us this desire, I mean, he's, he's awakened in us our, our utter inadequacy that we'd take it in, that we'd meditate on it, that, that we would feel the, the longing for this kingdom, for, for what is to be. And yet we come off the mountain and we 
we are left with no other conclusion than I could never do that. If this is the kingdom of heaven, then oh, everything in me longs for the kingdom of heaven. But if this is the kingdom of heaven, I know I can't get there. There's nothing I can do. I'll never be able to live up to that. See, I think what Matthew's doing is he puts these teachings of Jesus, there are five of them throughout his gospel. Each of these teachings are meant to awaken in us this longing for what we were created for, for what will be, and alongside that longing for those things, it's, it's this confronted with the reality we can never live up to that. And so by the time you get towards the end of Matthew, you're thinking, this is great, I want this. I, I want everything Jesus is talking about. How in the world can I get it? And then Matthew, Matthew tells you about how Jesus took your place on your cross and died for your sins. In the meantime, I think he helps us know how to read this. At the beginning of, of chapter 8, they've come off the mountain. It says this, but when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. See, I think we're supposed to read the Sermon on the Mount as those who are lepers. They come up and say, Look, I can't cleanse myself. There's nothing I can do to make myself whole. But Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And I know this, and I think I know this, because not only are we introduced to the leper, but we're in the very next passage introduced to the centurion who has faith like no one else in Israel. Jesus heals many, he says. He, he took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. He calms a storm and says to the disciples, Woe, you of little faith. He heals a man of two, with two demons. The demons know exactly who, we are, who he is. He heals a paralytic seeing the friend's faith. He calls Matthew. Um, he restores a little girl and a woman who is infirmed. He heals two blind men. The question is, do you believe that I am able to do this? The question at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, for all of us, is not what are you able to do, but what do you believe? With that, let's hear the first bit of it. It's called the Beatitudes. I'm going to begin in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And we'll walk through this, seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's look at the first few of these together. Verse 3, the poor in spirit. Oswald Chambers starts it this way. He says, our Lord begins where we never would begin, at the point of human destitution. That the greatest blessing a man ever gets from God is the realization that if he's going to enter into his kingdom, he must be, it must be through the door of destitution. Naturally, we do not want to begin there. That is why the appeal of Jesus is of no use until we come face to face with realities. Then the only one worth listening to is the Lord. Blessed. It implies an inner satisfaction, um, sufficiency, that, that doesn't depend on our out, outward circumstances for happiness. This is what the Lord offers those who trust Him, blessedness. He, he's declaring, uh, one writer says, not, not, what the, the, not what they may feel like, a happiness, maybe yours is happy as the man. But what God thinks of them and what on that account they are, they are blessed. This is how God views those who are poor in spirit and mourn and are meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Craig Barnes in Hustling God, he says this, he says, when Jesus used the word blessed in the Beatitudes, he claimed that the right path was the opposite one from the one we would expect. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the, uh, those who mourn. The, the right path isn't the road we climb up. It is the road that God climbs down to bless us. Jesus said in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, those are who need a physician. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. The only people that will ever come to get what Jesus has to give are sick people. People who know they are spiritually and morally and very often physically crippled. broken. Emerson, the great poet, died about a hundred years ago, wrote a famous essay called Self-Reliance. Here's one line, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates 
to that iron string. Discontent is the want of self-reliance. It is infirmity of will. So see, the real infirmity, the real brokenness, the real problem, Emerson says, is a lack of self-reliance. And then along comes Christ, not with a cure for the disease, but a set of promises. See, Christ is the stumbling block because he takes the disease we hate the most, helplessness, and instead of curing it, what he does is he makes it a doorway to heaven. When he talks about foreign spirit, it's not necessarily anything to do with financial poverty. He's not endorsing social exploitation and starvation. To be poor in spirit is to be poor in the, in the inward self, in the inward man, not in your outward circumstances. To be poor in spirit, in other words, is to know one's deep spiritual poverty before God. To know that we can't meet the standards ourselves. To be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. Biblical writers have known this all along. David says in Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In First Chronicles, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to uh, thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. And of your own have we given you. Solomon says in First Kings, And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out. Or come in, Job says, I, heard, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah and Isaiah 6. Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is poor in spirit. Kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of any earned merits, any personality traits, not your social intelligence, not your station in life, not where you were born or what time. It's given to the poor, the despised, the, the prostitutes and the drug dealers and the sinners of all kind, those who are so poor they know they can offer nothing and do not try. They cry for mercy. That's the poor in spirit. And alone, they are the ones heard. 
those who know the depth of their poverty. It was pride that led to the fall of Satan, pride that led to the fall of man, each seeking God's place. And for them, it led to condemnation. On the other hand, we have the example of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 who, was, who uh, knew equality with God, but yet it was not something that he grasped. William Carey's gravestone, one of the great missionaries, this is William Carey, born August 17th, 1761. Died June 9th, 1834. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. It's not bad. Well, verse 4, those who mourn. If blessed in the poor in spirit. So this is a way of seeing yourself. The, the intellectual honesty to assess yourself rightly. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4. This is the, the response, the emotional response that flows out of seeing ourselves rightly. It's, it's, the, it's the godly ache. Any amount of self-examination, I think, yields this sense of mourning that Jesus talks about. And I think that's why so many people avoid self-examination. And, and when you avoid self-examination, then there's, you know, you don't come to a place where you confess sin. And then if you don't confess your sin, you, you don't know the forgiveness of your sin and the fellowship with the Spirit as you should. We spend so much time trying to keep the silence away because with silence comes self-examination. To slow down long enough to look at our life. For many of us, we need that. We need the, the sweet conviction of the Spirit. But it doesn't end there. Blessed are those who mourn. Look at what it says. For they shall be comforted. It's this divine passive. It's, it's this blessing promised in, in the Beatitudes. They only come from God's intervention. So see, the, the Beatitudes, these, 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 blessed, these, these blessed sayings, that they, they prepare us in a sense by slaying us, cutting us, so that we may live. Well, what happens is we're going to be held up to God's standard for the kingdom. And, and, and we've got to die to the fact that there, we, we can't live up to God's standard of the kingdom, but we can by faith run to him to be made whole. See, what it does is it, is it cuts through all of our delusions 
that Christianity is a formula or a set of behaviors or something that you can act your way into. Christianity is not a set of right answers. It is a relationship with the one who's called the great physician who can heal you. Well, verse 5, meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some of the translations you have may say gentle. Think of it as mild and gentle and humble, modest. It's an attitude of humility towards God and gentleness towards people. I was typing it this week, and my word processor kept wanting to change meekness to weakness. They're similar, but they're not the same. Weakness is a usually negative circumstances, the lack of, of strength or the lack of, of courage. Um, meekness, on the other hand, though, there's tremendous strength. Think of it as strength under control. One child defined meekness this way, giving soft answers to rough questions. That's good. One commentator, men cannot understand how meekness is going to inherit the earth. Men believe in physical strength. Men believe in, in arms and armies. They believe in craft and cunning. They believe in energy and will and perseverance. They believe in things. They believe in matter. They believe in influencing their fellow men, working upon them by threats, by pain, and by fear. Few men believe that a humble man is being used in the strongest possible manner. They cannot credit that his humility shows that he is governed by his highest nature. Interestingly enough, Matthew uses this word one more time, and he's using it when he's quoting Zechariah chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus on, the, um, on Palm Sunday is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he says, he, quoting Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming to you humble or meek, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He does not simply just meet us in our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He came to take that on. There's a story told um, from the president of, of Taylor University. He says it this way, when Sammy Morris, a crew boy from Africa, came to America to be trained for Christian service, he presented himself for matriculation at Taylor University. And he revealed a spirit all too rare amongst Christians. The president asked him when he showed up, he said, well, what, what, what room uh, are you wanting? Because he's going to move in. And Sammy Morris says, if there's a room nobody wants, 
Give that to me. The president wrote about it afterwards. He says, I turned away for my eyes were full of tears. I was asking myself whether I was willing to take what room nobody else wanted. In my experience as a teacher, I have had occasion to assign rooms to more than a thousand students. Most of them were noble Christian young ladies and gentlemen, but Sammy Morris was the only one of them who ever said, if there is a room that nobody wants, give that to me. It's meekness. Well, verse 6, and we'll be done, but those who hungered and thirst for righteousness, in many ways, maybe this is the center of all these beatitudes. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to ignite in us. our culture doesn't want to know anything of hunger and thirst. It's a society built around never being hungry, never being thirsty. And if we're honest, the church has kind of done that too, right? I mean, the Pharisees provided us a great model. The gospel, the Holy Spirit in our life, and it exposes our needs. He exposes our needs, our deficiencies, our unrighteousness, and we try to fill those with all these forms of righteousness. Holy Spirit comes along and reveals this deficiency, and our response is, oh, well, we, we can't have that. I must fill it with something. So many people do what they do in life. They go to church, they give, they're outwardly play the part for the purpose of trying to be filled. But that's not what the verse says. The verse instructs us. We're to, we're to go to the place of hunger and thirst and remain there to be filled by God. Lloyd-Jones, my last Lloyd-Jones quote, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what it is in his heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed among the husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. The hunger and thirst really means to be desperate, to be starving, to feel life is ebbing out, to realize my urgent need of help. For the unbeliever, the filling is salvation. The hunger and the thirst is, I don't have a righteousness, I don't have a perfection, I don't have any standing with which I could stand before God. It is a hunger and thirst for that which would make you whole to be able to stand before God. It is salvation. It is called the righteousness of Christ. And it gets, gets counted towards you when you believe all His holiness, His sacrifice is laid upon you. For the believer, this ongoing hunger and thirst, this is sanctification. This is the desire to conform to Christ, to be transformed. To become who we are already in Christ. 
And the promises, these promises are fulfilled perfectly in eternity. We're hungering, we're, we're thirsting for what is not yet but will be. And you never quit hungering and you never quit thirsting. And you find yourself filled by God. Max Lucado, for some, Jesus is a good luck charm. The rabbit's foot redeemer, pocket-sized, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put your picture on, his picture on your wall, and stick it in your wallet. You can frame him, dangle him from your rearview mirror, or glue him to your dashboard. But that's not who he is. That's not the Redeemer of the New Testament. Here's a handful of things. One, you cannot do this on your own. As Jesus teaches, as he, as he speaks, and as we hear him on that mountain, it is to drive us to a place of absolute need for the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. Secondly, you need to know all Christians are to be like this. This is who we are. This isn't just for the preachers and the missionaries or the nuns or those who are exceptionally spiritual. This is the bar for all of us in Christianity. The other thing is, none of these descriptions refer to natural tendencies. It's just who we are by nature. He's talking about the kingdom. If you're a believer, then you already have kingdom citizenship. This describes kingdom character. This is who you are. This brings me to the last principle. You are versus to be. We're not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become a Christian. What we're hearing from Matthew, this sermon from Jesus, because you are a Christian, live like this. This is how Christians live. This is the new way of being human that you were born into. So I want you to take this opportunity over the next weeks. Would you do, would you do that? Would you, would you take your spiritual pulse over the next few weeks? This summer on the mount. Would you resist the temptation to make this sermon about behavior by making resolutions or rules? or standards by which you continue to judge those around you. Listen, here's the reality. The Sermon on the Mount, this is what, this is what we expect from everybody around us. This is what we're hopefully, hopelessly capable of doing ourselves. 
sermon's meant to unfold your heart, allow you to examine what's inside. Let me ask you this. Would you allow yourself over the next weeks to be undone by the teaching of Jesus? Find yourself where Isaiah was in Isaiah 6. Woe, woe is me. I am undone. If your struggle's money, let this unfold you. If it's sex, if it's ambition, your ability to assimilate to the world around you, please all the people, whatever your struggle, would you let the words of Jesus have their effect on you? Bring people in your life. Be honest about what Christianity is for you. It's not how well you perform. It's how perfect your Savior is. And the last thing I'd ask you, would you read the sermon? Would you read it every week? For Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. That as we stand up here and we read it and as we teach through it, preach through it, it would be familiar. It would become increasingly familiar to you. Maybe you've never studied a portion of Scripture. Would you take these weeks, these 12 weeks, would you study this portion of Scripture with us? Matthew 5 through Matthew 12. Matthew 7. 12 weeks. Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. Let it wash over you. Let it kindle in you. All that you're meant to be. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I ask you to do what only you can do. That the deep would call to deep this morning. That that the heights of heaven would call to the depths of our soul and draw us out. Father, I pray we would not be afraid of our need for you. We'd know what it is, the blessedness of being poor in spirit, the blessedness of mourning, the blessedness of meekness, the blessedness of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Father, I ask that you would do that in us this morning. Draw us to your word. Draw us to your son. It is in his name, the name of Jesus that we pray and by the power of your spirit.